I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Each week, we are unlocking the physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual tools that help athletes reach their biggest goals in sports. I'm very proud to announce our new sponsor, Katsu Global. I love their products, and I'm so thankful for their support of this podcast. I'll tell you a little bit more about Katsu later on in this episode. Today's guest has an intense drive to win, but at the same time is filled with an incredible gratitude for each and every person that's helped him along his tenacious journey. Michael Hickson began his rise to the top at a young age, capturing nine junior national titles, four junior Pan Am championship medals, two junior world championship medals, and a youth Olympic games bronze medal. But even with all of those accolades, Mike explains to us in this episode why he still always felt like he was playing catch up. He also discusses why he decided to transfer schools after winning both springboard events his freshman year at NCAAs. He gives us some guidance and insight into the transferring process and how it's changed and become easier for athletes. Mike is now a two-time Olympic silver medalist in three-meter synchronized diving, and he earned those medals in two different Olympic games with two different synchro partners, Sam Dorman and Andrew Capabianco. Mike tells us about the stark contrast between his Olympic Games experiences, the two very different journeys to get there, and about his synchro partnerships and why they each worked so well. There was a theme throughout our conversation where Mike continued to touch on mindset, the benefit of adversity, and why they literally prayed for rain. Listen closely for these value bombs because they might just be what you need in the next phase of your own athletic journey. The very mindset that Mike talks about today, I want to help you attain, and I've created the Confidence Journal to help you learn it. I created this journal to help you keep your head in the game and to get you ready for your toughest competition. It's specifically designed to be quick and effective. You'll begin to take charge of your mindset and start your days off positive and focused. And then at the end of each day, you'll discover lessons and building blocks to continue growing. Just check out this five-star Amazon review from Evan Dives called Fantastic, Just What We Were Looking For. It reads, a very well-designed and comprehensive resource to help athletes stay focused, make and track their goals, and be positive. You can order your copy of the Confidence Journal at laurawilkinson.com slash journal or on Amazon by searching my name, Laura Wilkinson, and Confidence Journal. Make sure to smash that subscribe button and give us a five-star review if you're enjoying the Pursuit of Gold podcast. And please tell your friends about this podcast so that we can continue to improve and grow to that next level as well. All right, I believe that there's gold in your future, so let's dive on into this episode. Mike Hickson, welcome to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. I'm glad to finally get you on here. Laura, thank you so much for having me. Can't wait. (laughs) Well, we got to catch up recently at a dinner while you were in town, and you're kind of in the midst of a lot of life changes. Tell us a little bit about what's happening now. Yeah, I am. Um, So I guess nothing's really for sure, but... In 2020, when the Olympics were postponed, I was already decided to get my MBA at the University of Michigan. So I was going to pursue that. Um, Also decided to keep diving because I wanted to see that Olympics through and give it one more crack. And so I ended up doing both at the same time. (laughs) No easy feat. (laughs) Definitely one of the more challenging years uh, for a lot of reasons, COVID especially. Um, But so anyways, yeah, I uh, kept diving, um, got to the Olympics. Right now I'm sort of figuring out whether I want to keep going or or it's time to hang it up. So we'll make that decision in the next couple months. But uh, yeah, about to graduate from my MBA from the University of Michigan. And I have a job lined up and my decision will sort of come down to 
whether I want to go back and dive or, or take that job. Oh, man. Okay. That's intense. I didn't know this part of it. Okay. Well, now I'm excited. All right. Well, let's get into it. I want to go all the way back to the beginning. You found the sport of diving at a pretty young age. Tell us kind of how that all got started. Yeah, the uh, the beginning's the best part. So my <laughs> my mom was a college diving coach. She coached at Williams College, Amherst College, University of Massachusetts. And when I was really young, like you know, two three years old, she was coaching at Amherst College. And my dad was coaching across the hall. He was coaching the basketball team at Amherst College. <laughs> and so my entire life, I uh, I grew up in a gym. I grew up in a gym and a pool. And I actually refused to go to kindergarten my first year because I was having so much fun. And there was no way that anyone was going to ever get me to sit in a classroom when prior to that, all I'd done is, you know, play all day. And so I loved it. And um, so I, I grew up around the pool and, you know, every once in a while I would just get in. And actually the thing that really hooked me is my mom had a diver who would hang by his feet off three meter, which is not, it is not actually diving. It's just a clown trick, a party trick. And uh, I thought that was so cool. And so at a very young age, I, I wanted to do that. And so what started is just getting in, bouncing around, having fun. I, I got to be about seven or eight years old and I started doing some real dives, you know, some of the voluntary skills. And, and then I got to be about I'd say 12, 13. And I started to go to nationals and, and meets like that and got really interested. And then around 15, I just, I fell in love with the sport. It was all I wanted to do. I know that's what I want to dedicate most of my time to. And I had an incredible coach and my mom to help me do it. And, you know, a lot of people don't really know for a while, it was just really her and I, and I trained with her college team quite a bit as well. But for a lot of the time, it was just her and I in the pool. So you can imagine, uh, <laughs> an angsty, an angsty teenager. Yeah, yeah. An angsty teenager. And I was the biggest pain in the butt of all time. You couldn't have had a worse teenager to deal with than me and my mom coaching me. And so, yeah, challenging times for sure. But I mean, I think back just in terms of setting a foundation for your career and teaching an athlete all the things that are important for her progression later on, just hard work, being focused, having that competitive edge. I mean, she was such an incredible teacher and remained an incredible teacher, remains an incredible teacher. Even uh, I'm sure after diving, she will be as well. But she's just been incredible to to be raised by and be coached by. Ah, I love hearing that. As a mom, I really like hearing that. I'm like, okay, what can I do better? <laughs> well, I mean, your mom, Mandy Hickson, she's not just a coach. I mean, she's also like won the Atlantic 10 Coach of the Year Award 17 times. Like that's absolutely amazing. She has a history as being a diver herself too. Like what's her what's her background? Yeah, so she uh, she did for Vince Panzano in the '80s at Ohio State. Um, she was a really good diver coming out of high school, the Bethesda area, Bethesda, Maryland. Went to Ohio State, had a great career there. She likes she's very humble, so she likes to describe it uh, that she was the worst diver in the pool on an Ohio State team. That was incredible. They had guys Pat Jeffries, Mark Bradshaw, tons of Olympians coming out of there. I mean. Yeah, the, the list goes on and on. And so she always says that. But she ended up third at Olympic trials and she didn't dive. Plat and this was on platform. She didn't start diving platform until she got to college. And so. Wow. Uh, what year was that? That was 84. Wow. That's awesome. Well, diving wasn't the only sport you did, though, because like you said, you were around the gym a lot and your dad wasn't just a coach. He's like a legendary coach in Amherst for the basketball. And he coached 42 seasons, holds the record for most wins in school history for any sport with 826 wins, placing him 15th on the all time NCAA basketball wins list. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome, too. Did you do some basketball growing up as well? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, that was uh, that was the hardest decision I had to make. Eighth grade was whether I wanted to keep playing basketball or I wanted to go fully into diving. But when you stop growing at five foot eight, your decision's kind of made for you. <laughs> but no, he's I mean, he's an incredible coach in his own right. And even outside of basketball into diving, he's he's giving me a lot there as well. But 
being around both of them was incredible. He's so funny too. He's, I, I'm sure you've been around coaches like this. There are coaches who they were born to teach and it doesn't really matter what we're talking about. They will watch something and feel like they can critique. I mean, he's never watched diving in his entire life, except for a few of the meets he's gone to watch me. And I'll never forget, I'll sit with him afterwards. My mom's great. My mom selectively knows when to say something, when not to say something. <laughs> she, she, she's, you know, a pro. And my dad will always like pull me aside and he'll, he'll give me something really technical. He'd be like, Hey, I noticed the pace in your hurdle. And I was like, you don't know anything about diving, but somehow <laughs> you know there's supposed to be a pace in my hurdle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then all of a sudden I was like, wait, but he's right. Like well, everything he's saying is correct. This is, this is pretty unbelievable. And so, yeah, he was, he was always fun to be around for those reasons, but yeah, it growing up playing basketball was a ton of fun. I always feel like that's such a important thing for kids growing up. One, it, it makes you a better athlete to pay more sports, but you can be competitive in a bunch of different ways, which is fun. And that's the other thing too, is like just having fun doing a bunch of different things. I think if you focus really early on, you forget that the reason you're doing all this stuff is because it's a blast, you know, and that was, that was always really important for me. I think that's really important uh, to remember. And that had to be different too, because one is a very individual sport and one is a team sport. And like, I struggled trying to do team sports after doing gymnastics for a long time, where some people are more naturally gravitated toward team sports, but you were doing both. So how, how did that like, did you have a hard time going back and forth or not really? No, that's a great point. And talk about two ends of the spectrum. Like I described earlier, I was diving alone in a pool with my mom. And then <laughs> very isolated. Very isolated. Absolutely. And then so the other side of that is I got to go play basketball with my friends. And so that for as a social outlet as well, that was that was a ton of fun to be a part of a team. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I definitely struggled more so being on teams. And even going back and diving synchro later on, you know, when you're going back and diving synchro, I even probably struggled more with that too. But some of the things I learned playing basketball with other people and you know, lacrosse, football, all those things, being part of a group, a group of people trying to achieve something. I think that's, that's really powerful and that sticks with you. And in the real world, that's how it works too. You know, it's, it's very seldom in the real world that you're working by yourself and you don't have to collaborate with others. And so I think all those lessons of being in team sports are great. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of great individual sports because it's just you and you have all the accountability, all the ownership, but the lessons in team sports, I think, are are great. No, I totally agree. I mean, that's sports are so great teaching lessons for life, too. Like, I, I love how you just phrased all that. But I mean, we, we talked about how amazing your coaches are. They're very renowned in their area as well. But was there pressure, you know, whether you felt that from them or just from you with expectations from them? Like, was there ever any of that or no? Not at all. And really? That's probably, yeah, no. And I think the parents who who have been there and had the success themselves and and they understand it. They're the ones who understand, like, it's got to be all from the kid to make that happen. And I think more often than not, probably because I was such a pain in the butt, my mom was like, Hey, just so you know, <laughs> if you want to stop diving, I support that. You know, <laughs> I think the amount of times I heard that was, uh, yeah, it was pretty hilarious, but it was, it was so true. She, she genuinely meant that like your, your enjoyment in diving or your enjoyment in basketball, that is way more important than, than anything like any goal that they could have for me. So they were great. They, my, my mom was really good at bifurcating and saying, you know, when we're in the pool, I have goals for you as your coach. Right. And I have a standard to hold you to as a coach. But the minute we walked out, it was, and I should say too, most of those goals are driven by me. But the minute we walked out of the pool, it was, it was my mom. And That's so you know, it was all about my happiness. Oh, she was, like I said, I don't think I could have asked for anyone better to 
to put me through that all those situations. That's so that's so cool because I would I would think that would be very hard to separate the two. Um, you know, like leaving the pool and being able to just leave it at the pool. I would think that'd be really hard. So it's that's cool to hear. More and more respect for Mandy. Uh, the more you talk about her. So shout out to Mandy Hickson. <laughs> no kidding. And, and I mean, you know, that's that's you're absolutely right. That was the biggest thing we struggled with. And there were times when it was like, it's a five minute drive from my house to the pool. And there were days where I was like, hey, I'm walking home. You know, like, <laughs> uh, just me, you know, knucklehead. But it, she did an incredible job of that. Even when I tried to bring it home or I wanted to talk about diving at home, she was incredible being like, no, that's like our relationship as as parent and child is, is way more important than anything we're doing in the pool. And so we really like directed a lot of care towards that to ensure that that was never affected by by the diving. That's awesome. So parents take note. <laughs> um, well, you you had a lot of success early on in diving at the junior level, probably while you were still doing some basketball on the side. I mean, you were a nine-time junior national champ, you four-time junior Pan Am medalist, you won two world junior medals, uh, youth Olympic games medalist. Like, what do you attribute all that success at such a young age? Because like, that's so, I was a mediocre gymnast at best, you know, and I didn't start diving and really competing until I was about 16. And so like, this is such a foreign thing to be so good at something so young to me. So what do you think all that success came from? Like, were you just always a mentally tough competitor? Were you just loving it? What, what kind of set you apart from everybody else at such a young age? You know, it's funny when you say that, it, it, when it reflecting on it, it doesn't feel like that. It felt like my whole junior career, I was behind. And that's exactly... <laughs> really? Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, you know, that's the person I idolized growing up was Christian Ibsen. And talk about success at an early age. Christian was doing double out of 12 and winning senior national championships at 15, 16 years old. And I think I just, I put him as the benchmark, the guy that I was always going to chase. And so I always felt like I started taking it seriously too late because I really started taking diving seriously at 12 or 13 years old. And I felt so far behind. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to chase this guy and have the success that he's had and get onto that national, international level the way he has at a young age, I've got a lot of work to do. And so, to be honest, chasing him was was one of the easiest ways to to get better. When you have a really high standard and you hold yourself to that, that's that's going to push you forward quickly. But I think the other thing, too, is, you know, I grew up training with college kids and I grew up with a coach who knew how to plan and what we always talk about is when you when you set goals, set unrealistic goals, but when you plan for those goals, be incredibly realistic with those goals. Oh, that's smart. So yeah, break that down more for us. Because I mean, I've always, I talk about, I hammer this out a lot. Like when people set a goal that they can already do, I'm like, that's not a goal. That should be on your to-do list that you check off. Like a goal is something you cannot currently do. So take us through that. Like how do you goal set, but then make these achievable plans to get to that goal? Yeah, I mean, it's all reverse engineering, but I think the first step too, and and sometimes for me, this was the hardest part, was setting goals that are probably outside of what you can achieve, right? And and for me, it was all like, I don't know if it was, you know, self-image or, or so, something where I didn't think maybe I was probably as good as I could have been, but my mom would say, or Drew would say, or Matt Scott would say, like, you know, let's, let's set a goal. And an example is when I'm 16 years old, all right, let's set a goal of winning a junior world championship. Okay, well, that's that's great to say, and anybody can say that. But now that we've put this big goal out there and we've put maybe something that's a little bit beyond your capabilities, beyond your reach, all right, now how do we make sure that happens? Well, let's reverse engineer it. If you're going to win a junior world championship, you need to score 520 points. All right, what does that look like for each of your optionals and each of your voluntaries? So then you just set a standard that way. And you might even find when you reverse engineer that we're not even doing the right dives. If we really want to achieve this goal, we need to up our DD. Or you may find we're doing the right dives, but 
you know, we can't hit that dive for 75 points like we need to. Or we can hit that dive for 75 points, but our consistency is one out of five. Can you really bank on a dive that's one out of five in a final? And so all those things went into it and the planning of, of where we needed to be. And the biggest thing for us was setting that standard. So if you know what you have to achieve, now you just have to execute. Okay, so now we know exactly what we want to do. All right, what are the steps we take every single day to make sure we can do what changes do we need to make in our diving to ensure that we can hit that goal? And so that was the process for me. And that was my process all the way to the very end. You know, I think something that I learned more about was how to set goals that were maybe unattainable or, or lofty. But that whole planning process that went into it, starting that at 12 years old, by the time I was done diving, it was something I was really good at. That's awesome. I love that. I mean, I, I found I was telling somebody about this because I just created this journal called the confidence journal. And we, we talk about goals in there. And I was just telling someone the other day, like it was something I just naturally did when I was younger. And I found when I was older, I had written all these like goal sheets down for myself from like gymnastics for the season. And at the end of the season, I would go back and look and see if I made it, you know, and then I, I did that for diving and I kept doing that stuff. And I, it was just something I naturally did. But then I kind of figured out this reverse engineering, like you're talking about. And I, I I think that's so, so wise. So athletes, listen up, take note of that. That is super, super important. Don't just have your goals as some pie in the sky. Like make a plan to get there. Like learn from the best, learn from Mike. He knows what he's talking about. Laura, one thing I'd love to ask you too about, and this is something I've admired for, for so long. I think it's one thing that there's not a lot of people that are in the realm that have the game that are full of winning an individual gold medal. But you, and you talked to Kennedy about this too. You guys just believed, like you guys believed in you to an incredible level that you need to have to be able to win. And I'm just like, you know, th- there are good days, there are bad days through tough times. You seem to hold that where you break your foot going into the 2000 Olympics and you still believe, okay, I can do this. Like nobody, <laughs> nobody else, their minds really don't work like that. And I would love to hear a little bit about like how you went about that process. Oh man. Um, you cracked me up, Mike, uh, putting me on the spot like that. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm a little foolish, <laughs> but I guess it was kind of that, like, well, somebody's got to win. Why not me? You know, it might've been as simple as that. Like, but like you said, like I, a lot of times I made almost very unrealistic goals. Cause that's just what I wanted to do. And it was like, well, I mean, I may as well try, you know, cause the worst that's going to happen is I don't get there, you know, but if I don't try, I'm not going to get there anyway. And so, you know, and it wasn't, I wasn't very vocal about these goals. It's not like I went and told everybody in the world because I felt, I felt foolish saying it to other people until I met Kenny and Kenny like forced me to tell him what my goals were. And so I told him and he didn't bat an eye. He didn't laugh at me. He didn't do anything. And at that moment I realized, okay, I guess this is something like I could do. And having that one person who like thinks your goals aren't crazy and thinks you can do it made me believe like, okay, I really can do this, you know? And it was, I think just like kind of having that initially and and having a lot of people doubt me, like I was kicked off our high school team. I had a lot of negative things said about me or to me. And, you know, and I'm kind of one of those, like, I'm going to prove them wrong, kind of, you know, like lights the fire and things like that. But, but it was also, and I feel like it's, it's people in my life that have either, either pushed me in that way or believed in me like Kenny or like my freshman year in college, this swimmer, um, Josh Davis, he had just gone to the Atlanta Olympic Games and won three gold medals, and he brought them to the pool to show us. And I'd never seen an Olympic medal in person. Like, I'd only seen this on TV, and it was this pipe dream I had. But when I saw it and he let us touch them, I was like, this is a very real person on my team standing here in front of me that got these. Like, you can actually go do this. Like, a person can actually go get this. It's not just some actor we see on TV. Like, this is real. 
And I think the the more little just touch points you have like that, that either push you, you know, to try to prove somebody wrong or like, like help you believe in this crazy thing you're going after. I think it's kind of all those touch points, you know what I mean? It wasn't necessarily any one big thing, but, but I I think it's okay to have crazy dreams and to chase after them. Cause I mean, like I said earlier, I, I would rather go and fail than to wonder in five years, like, well, what if could I have, I, I can't live with that. I would rather fail and know, all right, well, at least I tried than always wondering if I could have done it. You know what I mean? That's awesome. Yeah. And those touch points, you're doing that for kids right now too. You're so accessible, especially to junior divers where they see that and they think, oh, this is something I could do too. And there's no question that the next kid who wins a gold medal out of the US in diving, it's going to be because probably a conversation you had with him. That'll play a role in it. And so that's that's super exciting. That's awesome. Aw, you're going to be like my little... <laughs> I'm going to keep you in my pocket and have this like nice, happy voice talking to me anytime I doubt myself. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> well, okay. I want to move on. So what was the transition for you like from, I mean, you thought you were behind, but I see on paper, at least like you were this amazing junior diver doing all these crazy things. You go to the University of Texas. I mean, you win both boards at the NCAAs that year. Like what was the transition from junior diving to college diving? Like, was it totally different or was it kind of just a really easy transition for you? You know, I mean, just growing up around college diving my entire life, I felt very prepared, probably in a way that most people weren't just because college diving is very different, right? You have meets every weekend, but you're still peaking for one event, going through a zone meet, 10 CAAs, conference meet, being in that atmosphere where there's swimmers all around the pool deck and, you know, you're diving and it's loud, it's noisy. It's not like being at a junior nationals. (laughs) Um, I felt, I felt very prepared for that. And the environment at Texas was just incredible. I mean, you talk about a team that just works so hard and Matt just facilitating an environment for people to get better. And everybody cared so much about everyone else's progress. Maybe in a way I haven't seen before. Like it, it was so awesome. And, you know, our men's team specifically just really bonded that year in a way that was so special. And we ended up having a great incident of blaze as a team. Part of that too is I think tying into being a part of a swim team that was trying to win a national championship. And I just remember having conversations really early on with senior swimmers on the team, junior swimmers on the team. And all they wanted to do was win a national championship and having conversations about what we need from the diving team. And this goes back to intention and planning. And the more we had conversations, I'm thinking, I need to win both boards for us to have a chance. And this isn't about me. This isn't about me winning both boards for myself or wanting to win an NCAA championship. This is about trying to help my team win a national championship. And so I just think whenever you're doing something for somebody else, your ability to compete is just strengthened. You know, because when you're just doing it for you, you're, I don't know, you're nervous and I I don't know. But when you're doing it for other people, it's like, I have to do this for you. I have to stand up and I have to do this for you for us to complete this dream that we've been talking about for a full year. And so the power of other is, I think, what that year taught me all about. And definitely something that stuck with me, especially, you know, you look at the two, two Olympic medals I have are in synchro and both of them we can talk about later, but it was, it was doing it for other people in those moments that made that possible. And so that year at Texas, for that reason, was was just incredible for my progression, I would say, as as a diver, as a competitor, and, and as a leader as well, I thought it was it was really impactful. I, oh gosh, I love everything you're saying, Mike. Um, I, I knew you were going to be fun to talk to. <laughs> but I, I love what you're talking about because some people see that as doing it for other people, like that's this pressure and this expectation. But that's not how you see it. And I can I can tell that from your voice because this is more like, we talked with Dr. Ben Holtberg. Um, gosh, I don't know if he's episode like 28 or something. Go back and find it, guys, if you want to listen to this. There is a difference between fear-based performance and purpose-based performance. And you are talking about a purpose. You had me meaning to this. 
not pressure, not expectation. You had a purpose doing it for somebody else, something bigger than yourself. And when you're doing it for something bigger than yourself, sometimes you can do things that you can't normally do as well. Like you, you hear those stories about like moms being able to lift a car up to save their baby. That they, There's no way they could lift a car up. You know what I mean? But when it's that important, there's something on a line, these crazy things can happen. And um, so I think that's really important to find that purpose, your why, something bigger than you. It does allow you to come to this whole new level that, that you can't always just achieve when you're just doing something for yourself. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I think actually probably the biggest example of that in is the, uh, the two springboard titles were, were impactful for sure. And, and meant a lot of what I could contribute, but I, I'm not a platform diver at all. And I somehow snuck into that a final on platform. Did you do a five meter this- list? It was uh, it was a little hybrid. I did a little bit of ten meter too, like back twist, one hundred seven. What? I've never seen you do tower. Did you used to do tower? Uh, just my freshman year at Texas, just for <laughs> just for those guys. And I I would say to them because I would practice tower once a week, and I made a deal with Matt. I was like, hey, I'll dive tower for this team, but I'm really serious about springboard. I can't have it detract from that. So I would do my entire workout with a group on three meter and then stay for the next group to dive tower. Cause I wasn't going to take a springboard workout off, but I remember <laughs> after every practice and I would walk up, I had some unbelievable friends in the swim team, but after every tower practice, I'd go up to him and be like, Hey, just so you know, like that practice was for you guys. That wasn't for me. <laughs> you know, I'm not trying to make the Olympics on 10 meter. This is, this is for you guys. And sure enough. So I, I make the A final on 10 meter and I just walk up to like, that was for you guys. That's it. That was just for you guys. <laughs> I love it. And you're you're a little crazy. That's a, uh, yeah, a little crazy. I mean, Tower, I feel like you have to be super focused on. So to be doing that for others, I mean, that's a, that's a whole other level, Mike, of commitment. <laughs> well, I mean, you had such a great experience, it sounds like, at Texas, but you ended up transferring after your freshman year. Like, why? What was that process like? I know we were talking right before we started recording that it's much easier now than it used to be back in the day. So kind of tell us about that whole process. Yeah, sure. You know, it's funny. I, especially with parents, when I was in Indiana, I would have people who recruits who were looking at Texas, Indiana, and they'd ask me questions about Texas. And they're always really surprised because I have nothing bad to say about my experience in Texas. It was as good of an experience as you could have in a freshman year. I just absolutely loved it. I loved Matt. I loved the team. I love the University of Texas. As you know, that's a great place. Mm-hmm. Um, hook them. <laughs> hook them. Exactly. Uh, but essentially, after that year, I just sort of decided, look, what's my next goal? What do I want to do? It's two years for the next Olympics. And I just decided, look, this is something I've wanted for a really long time. Whatever it takes to get me to the Olympics, um, I'm willing to do that. And so I had to look at my shortcomings, right? I had to look at what's between me. And at the time, I'm a far way off. I'm, I think I was sixth or seventh at that senior nationals on three meter. And you got David and Nick coming down to three meter at the time. And so I'm trying to navigate that whole situation. And I'm just a really far way off. And I'm thinking, all right, well, what, what am I good at? What am I bad at? Well, I'm good at competing. I'm good at working hard. Technically, I'm struggling. My, the technical components of my diving just aren't strong enough to dive at the level that I need to be at. And if you ever watched me practice, it was like I would practice at, uh, it was not by any effort, but I would practice at a mediocre level compared to how I would compete. And so what I realized is I just need to, I need to become better at practice. I need to find a way to become a better diver. And, you know, I, I just looked around and I thought, all right, well, who can help me do that? And quite frankly, I just think the best person in the world at that is Drew Johansson. And he had just gotten to Indiana University. He was at Duke when he was recruiting me. Um, and I was pretty close to going to Duke as well. But just reevaluating and seeing, all right, what do I need to do? I looked around and, and Drew was at Indiana and he had all the tools there. And to me, his mind for technical changes in diving is unparalleled, at least in the Western world. And so I made the decision to go there and uh, yeah, didn't look back. 
<laughs> That's awesome. So what was the tra- was the transferring process itself difficult? Funny enough, like it, it could have been, but Texas was really accommodating and they understood that this wasn't a negative thing towards them and they released me and that was really nice of them. Certainly it can be for a lot of people. I think now the, the transfer situation is really different. I We were just talking before the call started about, about the transfer portal and it seems like anybody can drop in and sort of shop around and see what they want to do, which it's great for athlete empowerment, but it also um, just creates a situation where you don't really know what's even going on on the team. It seems like it's pretty mm-hmm. nuts, but uh, that is yeah. So anyways, much, much more difficult back in the day, but you know, because Texas was willing to do that and I was able to go to Indiana, it was it was pretty seamless. And I was able to dive right away. I didn't have to sit out a year, which was terrific. Well, yeah. So is that is that something that they can't do anymore? Because like you said, sometimes if you if you moved like within a big 10 school or something, you couldn't compete the next year, um, you know, things like that. Like, is that still in effect or is that gone with the transfer portal? You know, I don't know. I don't know all the rules um, in terms of sitting out. But from what I understand, it's a lot easier than it used to be. In terms of certainly contacting people while you're still enrolled in another school, I think it's significantly easier. And I think a lot more people are doing it. Gotcha. And you even see kids enter this transfer portal and then stay where they are, Mm. which to me is is very bizarre. I don't know if you can imagine being like, (laughs) hey, guys, I'm thinking about leaving. No, wait, I'm back. So I don't know. It's, It's a strange situation. Well, so on that note, like, what do you think are good reasons to look at transferring? And what are maybe not good reasons to look at transferring? To me, it's all about really being reflective on what you want. And so whether that's academically, whether that's socially, athletically, whatever it is, you have to make sure that you're doing what you want. And one of the things I really dislike about what's happened with the NCAA is it seems like the recruiting process is moving up earlier and earlier. And so if 16-year-olds, maybe even 15-year-olds, you know, early juniors in high school are making decisions and then 24 months later enrolling in that school, a lot happens in 24 months. Yeah. You change a lot in that time. And you maybe what you want changes too. And look, there, there's no problem with either what, whether your goals get bigger or you decide you want something else, else in life and you don't fully just want to be dedicated to diving. I think understanding exactly what you want is critical. And so if you're thoughtful about that and you say, look... There's another opportunity, whether it's academically, athletically, socially, as I said, if there's another opportunity for you to have an experience that you're not having where you are, then maybe it's worth considering for sure. I think one of the issues, and this is true with the, you know, not that everyone in the transfer portal is like this, obviously, but you're going to have issues with, especially as an athlete, like it's really hard NCAA athlete. If you're training for, you know, they say 20 hours a week, but I'm not, I'm not so sure that's true. Nobody trains <laughs> 20 hours a week. Nobody trains 20 hours a week. <laughs> But I just think about the days that I had when you're training, you know, six hours a day, you're going to a full load of classes, you're trying to have some sort of social life, like it's demanding. It takes a lot. And if you think you're not going to get burnt out, or you think you're not going to have interpersonal issues with people, or even an issue with a coach, like, you're just wrong, that's going to happen. And so I think understanding there's a difference between small issues that you need to address and you need to confront and overcome those because those are huge in your growth as a person. And right. you, if you're just going to keep running from something, it's, it's never going to fix itself. And so taking ownership for that is really important too. And so I think maybe the the wrong reason to transfer is maybe if you think everything's supposed to be just a hundred percent perfect and exactly what you envision, it's just not. And understanding that going into that, it's important knowing that it's not going to be like that anywhere. 
And so if that's what you're looking for and that's why you're transferring, that's probably a bad reason. Wise words, Michael. Thank you. Well, you redshirted going into the Rio Olympics. That wasn't a thing back when I was diving in college long, long ago. Um, they didn't have that. There was only medical redshirt. Um, but you decided to redshirt going into the Rio Olympics. And it obviously worked out, seemed like a great idea. Would you recommend that for other athletes or only to some? I would recommend it to some. I think there's a select few people who have a very legitimate shot going into Olympic trials going into that year. But I feel like if you have that shot, it's really powerful. And I can speak to this too. When I was done college, and we just had that conversation about how demanding it is. When I was done college, just training as a pro, it's incredible. Just all your energy can go into diving. All your time, your mind is always on diving. And that's a really powerful thing. And you can get you can get better much quicker by having that type of lifestyle as opposed to if you're, you know, running from class and you can't even get lunch before, or running from uh, the pool. You can't even get lunch because you have to get to class and your whole day is hectic and you're exhausted by the end of it. That's a totally different style. And so for me to just take that year and just fully commit myself to diving, that was really powerful. And, and probably in terms of rate of improvement, I don't think I had another year like that. I mean, that was just so powerful to me. My and like I said, you know, physically, it's one thing when you're young, it's it's not too bad because you know, 20 year olds there, they've got more energy than anyone. But really just the fact that my mind, you know, it wasn't on economic consulting, which is what my major was. It was on diving the whole time. And I think that was really powerful and just allowed me to improve really quickly. So I think I think I'd recommend it for anybody who's who's on that level and, and trying to make an Olympic team. Yeah, I mean, I had to give up my scholarship back, and that was my choice: either either do the the year, um, you know, with competing at NCAA's and doing all that, going to the Olympics, or leave your scholarship and go for that. So that's that's what I chose to do, which was hard, but but I'm glad I made that choice. You know, and I went back and finished school later. But um, lots of options. Like just because something seems a certain way doesn't mean it's your only option, too. So definitely explore all options in those kind of situations. But I want to talk about this going into Rio because that was kind of a cool year. You were one of our top individuals. You were doing synchro, but you guys were kind of like, tell me the synchro situation because you and Sam only ended up like your very first meet was at Olympic trials where you won. And then your second meet was at the Olympic games where you earned a medal. So tell us how that all happened. Like what was that year leading up to it? Like, yeah, uh, very interesting. Very interesting. For <laughs> sure. So, I mean, you talk about somebody who's really good at reverse engineering and planning Steve Foley, who was a high performance director at the time is just incredible at that. And he would lay it out. He'd go, you know, guys, if um, if you want to win a medal at the Olympics, we need to be in the 440 plus range for points. And all right, take out 100 points for balls. That puts you at 340. What's the math to get there? And so, you know, you know, you need to be in like the 80 point range. And and what list is going to or 80, 85 points, I should say, in that range, what what's going to get you there? And so the big thing was a front four and a half. And so you added everybody could do both twisters, reverse three and a half twister double out. And then a couple teams had pretty good in with three to halves. But the way we were right now was we were split up where Sam was diving with Christian and Troy. And they, they were all solid. I mean, you know, Christian and Sam got us the Olympic spot. So they were top seven in the world. I mean, that was a really formidable team. Because at that time, and, there was a lot of like mixing and matching, right? Like camps and you're trying to figure out the best team. Is that kind of how the process worked? Yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of camps figuring that out. And and Darian Schmidt and I kind of stuck together. And Darian's one of my best friends, and he was a heck of a diver. And so we always thought we had a good shot, and we were pushing the 109. It was just clear that, you know, one of the reasons this quad was so unusual was that Sam and I were examples of two guys who kind of came on late in the quad. And you have guys like Troy, where, you know, day one of every quad he came into, you know, okay, 
this guy's a player and, you know, we could build a team around him and same thing with Christian, but you just saw Sam and I get, you know, our, our level of acceleration improvement was, was pretty high. And so coming into that last year, especially and our improvement was different. Sam all of a sudden became a really good competitor and he'd really struggled with that prior, prior to really that run in 2016, he would have meets where he would just miss big. And that obviously takes you out of it. And on the other hand, I was, what we taught the difference was I couldn't do a front four and a half. And I was struggling to make some of these dives. And so all of a sudden, Sam was getting to be a much better competitor. I was figuring out these harder dives and I was getting way better in terms of quality of dive. And so we sort of, re- I shouldn't say we, Steve Foley really reevaluated. And we're in, I think, March or April. And he's looking around saying, we have a team that can finish top five. No question about it. We probably have three teams that can finish top five. We don't have a team that can medal. And what's it going to take to get there? And so he did what I think is the greatest thing you can do in sports. He took the five best three meter divers in the U S he put us in a pool. He matched everybody with everybody. And every single person had their shot to show, look, I'm deserving of being on this team. And the Olympic team isn't decided in that pool, but you know, it's a pretty strong indication. You sort of pick an A team and a B team or whatever you want to call it. And, uh, it was just clear from that camp that Sam and I were going to be partners and that that was going to work. And I remember Drew sat down with me before the camp started and he goes, all right, Mike, give me some information on what you're thinking. Like, who do you want to dive with? Who do you not want to dive with? And I just said, I'll dive with anyone but Sam. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I really did. I was like, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't see that happening. I don't see that working. I don't think our synchro will be good. I don't see us gelling as, as a partnership. Uh, and then three days later, we're in that same room. He goes, what do you think? I was like, I'm only going to dive with Sam. You know, <laughs> this, this is the guy. And I think, I think we can do it. And it was unbelievable. And you know, the, the, one of the things too, and this was big for me, and I, I don't know how you were as a diver, but I, I was big into rivalries. Like it was, it was personal for me. And so for a long time, Sam and I were fighting to make individuals against each other. And for that reason, we just, you know, we weren't friends. We were competitors fully. And I couldn't get that out of my mind. And, uh, it wasn't until that point we came together as a synchro team where all of a sudden I was like, no, this guy's, this guy's awesome. He's a great guy. He's a great competitor. He's a great diver and someone you want to be a teammate with. I first started using Katsu after I discovered it could be used for recovery. After speaking with a Navy SEAL friend that had used Katsu to help him recover from traumatic injuries, I decided to give it a try for an ongoing tricep issue I had. Within the first week, I noticed the cramping I had in my tricep would completely stop after a katsu session. It also helped me recover much faster after platform workouts. After seeing such great recovery, I started to add katsu into some strength training and plyometric workouts as well. And the craziest side effect that I noticed was that I was hardly ever sore from a hard workout that I did while wearing the katsu bands. I feel like katsu has given me the ability to get stronger while recovering faster. Katsu is the pioneer and gold standard of the emerging blood flow restriction market. Navy SEALs, world champions, and gold medalists use Katsu daily for improved performance, quicker rehabilitation, and unprecedented recovery from hard workouts, intense competitions, and even jet lag. Katsu was invented in Japan and has been used at every winter and summer Olympics since 1988. Katsu Global offers a variety of easy-to-use products that can be used safely and effectively in the comfort of your home, office, or during travel. It can be used for any workout or between training and competitions for recovery. To learn more about Katsu and even get 10% off, go to laurawilkinson.com slash katsu. That's laurawilkinson.com slash katsu, K-A-A-T-S-U. 
So how did you feel going into trials? Because you've always been pretty focused on, like you said, individual and what you're doing. And at trials, you're doing synchro and individual. Um, you know, and what which one came first? Was it synchro that was first? Yeah. So you do prelim semi for synchro and then you do prelim semi for individual, final synchro, final individual. So back and forth the whole time. Okay. So how, like, did, did the synchro, do you feel like set you up for individual? Yeah. I mean, just given the way we performed, it made me feel pretty confident. Uh, we had a really good prelim semi for synchro and actually gave ourselves a pretty good buffer going to the final. And that just, I think, got my confidence there. But the other thing too, and, and this is probably attributed to the timeline, Sam and I didn't really have time to get that deep in the minutia of our synchro. We weren't going to talk about, you know, your arm needs to be exactly here. So it's matching with the other person. We were pretty much like, okay, our timing is naturally very good. We just need to get next to each other and do our own dive. Yeah. Right. Our synchro was good enough. We're not going to get really like hypercritical on some of these details. We just need to worry about being in time and then hitting our dives. And keep so, it simple, right? Keep it simple. And so for us, that was huge because it really was a lot like diving individual just next to somebody else. And really, the more you can distill some of these, you know, synchro is pretty complex, but if you can distill it down to, okay, one, two, three, go, do your individual dive, the more simplicity you can find in that, the easier it is to execute. And so for us, I think, and I think you would say the same thing. That was, that was just something we had to do. The one thing I will say is you talk about two different personalities. I mean, <laughs> Sam doesn't want to look at the scoreboard. Sam just wants, and he, this is what made him such a great competitor is understanding himself. He just wanted to be in his own world and try to hit dives news on the board. Meanwhile, like I've got dive meets refreshing every 20 seconds <laughs> and I want to know exactly where we are. And I'm up on the board doing math before we go. And I'm just, I want to, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a rivalry based guy. I was always excited for that competition. And so that was different. And we had to respect each other on that. And instead of saying like, Oh, we're going to do it my way or your way. It was really respecting, Hey, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. And we'll make it work. That's so cool. I remember Jenny Kime, now Johansson and I, we did synchro uh, at the Sydney Olympic Games and we kind of got paired up after we made the team individually. It was different back then. But it was really funny because when we got nervous, she would get really quiet and I wouldn't stop talking. And it was so funny because I was like, am I bothering you? I'm talking so much. I feel like I'm bothering myself. Am I bothering you? She goes, no, you're actually calming me down. Keep talking. So it's like sometimes you find these funny things that you wouldn't know unless you're competing side by side that when those different personalities come into play, it can actually like help you a lot too. So what was it like that moment you make the Olympic team? Like I'm, I'm imagining this has been a, a pretty long time dream of yours since you said you have these huge goals and things like that. Walk us through those moments. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, I guess first and foremost, we have to end on a 109, which individually I'd ended on my entire life because A, it's my best category and B, you don't have to do a hurdle, which is pretty <laughs> right. awesome. Right. Um, so we're ending on 109, which is our hardest dive. We, we were in the exact position. That's the worst where it's like, we didn't have to hit it. We just had to pretty much complete the dive. And so of course my hurdle was 10 feet back from the end <laughs> and I like rolled it in. And so not exactly the prettiest way to make the Olympic team. Um, but I, yeah, I just remember, man, I remember hitting the water and looking up at the scoreboard. Is that enough? It was enough. And then I don't know, just this wave of emotion and, and really gratitude. It wasn't me alone that got it. it was everybody else. And the most special moment I have and the most special picture I probably have is me hugging my mom after that event, because just everything that you know, she gave me the sport, she allowed me to pursue something that really I, you know, I've loved so much and really has been the centerpiece of my life. And so 
for her to do that for me and, and allow me to have these experiences, uh, sharing that with her was incredible. And then, you know, just the gratitude to everybody else drew, you know, wh- where would I have been without him? I told you I made that move because I thought he was the guy that could do it for me. And he was, and he gave me so much of his, his time, his effort, his mind to make that possible. And so there were so many people that it was just incredible. And to share that with uh, Sam and Randy too, I mean, that relationship grew so quickly. It was so special. And yeah, like you said, I mean, you know, it's, it's a lifelong dream. It's, it's different than other, you know, sports where you have a championship every year, it's every four years. And it's something you dreamed about since you were a little kid. And so to have that moment, it just, uh, yeah, nothing like it. Well, and then like two days later, you make it on three meter. Yeah. In, in a very similar situation, talking about the last dive, it was like, I had a big lead. I had no grade to that point. It was like, this is the worst. I wish it was tied <laughs> and I could just go out there and like, you know, have that nasty look on but my you, face. You need that motivation, right? You need that little extra. Well, diving scared has never been good for anybody. <laughs> and that's sort of what it felt like looking back on it. Like it was, it was diving safe. It was diving scared. It was diving to not make mistakes. And that's not the way I compete. The way I compete is to go out there and aggressive Try to hit every dive yeah 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 but that okay so you have made the olympic team you and sam went from mortal enemies to like best friends you know <laughs> in like 2.7 seconds and you're getting to rio you're at the olympics what what was the olympics like was it everything you had hoped and dreamed of or was it like eh <laughs> you know cuz rio was a little crazy i'm not going to lie like i remember the wind knocking banners down there were bats flying around the the pool turned like this weird green that you couldn't even see through you know all these rumors about what's actually the pool would you dive in the pool like <laughs> so walk us through kind of the insanity and i'm sure still amazing experience that rio was it uh it was nuts and i would say a few things one i think one thing that really helped me keep everything in perspective is that my girlfriend at the time, Kennedy, was swimming for Canada, and she was in the Olympics there. And then my best friend and roommate, James Connor, was diving for Australia. And so even though we were at the Olympics, like we'd all get together and have lunch. And it was kind of like, yeah, we're kind of back in Bloomington just hanging out, you know? And so it kind of kept me, like you said, like having those moments with people who win gold medals and makes you feel like, oh, this is really possible. Well, being with my girlfriend and my best friend at the Olympics made me think like, ah, oh, you know, just another day. Like we're just hanging out. And so... <laughs> Even though there was so much chaos going on and all that stuff and all this excitement about the Olympics, you just felt I felt really comfortable, I think, for those reasons. And then, yeah, in terms of all the all the variables you spoke <laughs> about, we I don't know if I've ever told you about this, but we had an incredible speaker talk to us in, in January of Olympics, Scott Doney. And I'm sure you know Scott pretty well, but Scott's a Olympic silver medalist, 92, and he is the best storyteller I've ever seen in my entire life. And so he knows that the Olympics are going to be in Rio. He has this assumption that it's going to be a little crazy. We're diving outdoors. It's going to be winter. It's going to be cold. And so we're in Florida having training camp for that purpose in January where it's cold, it's rainy. And so he has our, our national team sitting in a room. He told me this later, but I guess Foley goes, hey, like he just thought he was going to be there and like hang out with us. And two minutes before he speaks, Foley goes, hey, I... I want you to give a speech to the team. And Scott has no idea what he's going to say. And so he gets up there and he goes, guys, the uh, title of my my presentation, my speech today is called Pray for Rain. <laughs> and basically what I want to talk to you about is, is my experiences and what I think you guys, the, the mindset you should adopt going into Rio. And he basically talked about how everything that can go wrong, you want it to go wrong. You want to embrace it. And you want to take that in because you know that you'll deal with it better than everybody else. Everybody else has to deal with that green pool. 
but are you going to embrace it? Are you going to be happy about this opportunity? Because they're upset. And, you know, that was, that was just something we took on. So whether it was this crazy wind that's blowing over, you know, the backdrop at Rio, or it's the green pool, or it's, you know, the food or all these, you know, crazy little wrenches thrown into what would have been a perfect plan. We were excited for that. We weren't just okay with it. We were like, this is great. And I'll never forget, you know, another sort of log for our fire. Another piece of motivation was Sam was reading David Goggins book. And it talked about how David Goggins is sitting outside in the snow, like in his underwear. And it's like negative degrees. And some guys who who he was staying with comes out and goes, you know what? You know, negative degrees out here. He goes, it's 85 and sunny in my mind. And so that was, that was the two things Sam and I were thinking about. And so sure enough, we come out for our final and it's cold and it's raining. And I just looked at him and I was like, Hey, pray for rain. It's 85 and sunny. Come on, let's go. Oh my we gosh. Just, I love that. We were ready to go. So yeah, all, all the, I guess this is all to say, like all the, all the crazy things that get thrown with the Olympics. And I think it's true for every Olympics, right? Like there's always these uncontrollables you can't have, but we were just as a team, so prepared and so excited for those, those little cranks. So it was great. Uh, I absolutely love that. Um, and I want to hear kind of a little bit of the breakdown of your silver medal event with Sam. It had such an epic ending. Like I still have, cause I, I was fortunate enough to be on the deck as it was happening. And I still have the replay in my mind of when you guys were waiting for the final scores and your reaction is just like an iconic Olympic moment to me. So like walk us through a little bit of that event for us. Yeah, it was great. Um, I mean, it's it's a close contest. I think we were down to Britain by 12 points and China to 10 points going to the last round. We dove really well to that point. And I always sort of segmented my list, right? Vols, it was kind of like, all right, let's be around 100. Just get through it. Vols are nerve wracking because, you know, you're just trying to be safe. Like I said, I hate diving safe, but that's what vols <laughs> are. Can't get around that. And then double out gainer twist. We started off with those two. And I always thought, you know, gainer twist was a dive I notoriously struggled with a little bit. And when we hit gainer twist, I always thought we're home. Like we're good because inwards my best dive and then front, I just know in the moment. And so we hit gainer twist and I'm all pumped up. It's great. And Sam's staying in his zone, which is awesome. And then we miss inward a little bit, which is a shock. We both went over and that was, I mean, that's our best dive. That's our bread and butter. And so there you go, like a little adversity for us, but we're still in contention. And so going into the last round, yeah, there's this delay. The, uh, the Mexican team called for a redive. I think they said there was a clap or some sort of noise. And when that happens, I'm not sure if any listeners watched Tom Daly in 2012, but same sort of thing. When someone calls for a redive, they have to discuss whether they're going to give it to them or not. And then they have to go back up. It stops the whole momentum of the competition. Yeah. It kills it. And as you know, as a diver, like everything you're doing to prepare to get up on that board, like you really get in your routine. And so adding five minutes to that totally messes you up. And the best part was, you know, Sam, like I said, he doesn't really want to be too involved in what's going on. He just wants to stay in his zone and get up on the board and, and be ready to go. And so it would even be to the point where I'd come get him at a certain number diver before us. And I'd tap him and be like, hey, it's time to go. And he'd take his headphones off and be ready to go. And so we're getting there ready to go. And he has no idea what's going on. I'm just like, hey, like we've already climbed the ladder. And I'm just like, hey, like be cool. Like, you know, let's plan on like three minutes. We'll go back up the ladder and we'll figure this out. But like, just stay calm. We got this thing. And uh, yeah, eventually they, they decided not to give Mexico the redive. And we're up there. And I'm thinking the whole time too, like, I've been in this situation before. This had happened to me on one meter at World Championships in 2015, where someone did the exact same thing. The meat got stopped. And it just built this momentum 
like it, it grew the moment even bigger, which was exactly what I wanted. Like, I just wanted to stare this moment down. And I mean, how many, how many chances like this do you get in your life? Right. And so the fact that this was just all going to be amplified and we were up there and I just remember <laughs> right before we went, actually, Sam starts to count and somebody yells something right before we go. And I was just like, let's go. I'm pumped. Like <laughs> I was just ready to go. And so we, uh, yeah, we, we had a good dive, probably one of our best front four and a halfs we've ever done. And, uh, none of that emotion was planned. That all just came out in the moment. And so a pretty big reaction from both of us and to share that with our coaches was, was awesome too. So epic. Uh, for those of you who have maybe not seen it, Mike is like, as soon as they see the scores, he's hit, Sam's just all smiles. Mike's like hitting the water with this like lion roar. And it's just like this fierce intensity. I love it. Just so, so absolutely iconic. What was it like getting that medal put around your neck? Oh man. Unlike anything. I don't know. Like it goes back to just sort of like everybody that went into that whole process. Right. And there was so much on both sides, Sam's side, my side, my entire career leading up to that. Like so many people had done so much for me. And so that whole time up there and it's just about the reflection and the gratitude for those people and what they've done for you. And, you know, I actually gave that medal to my mom and, uh, I did that because, you know, that, that was, that was hers. She's the one that gave me the opportunity to have the sport. And so I felt like that was appropriate to do. And so all that was, like I said, it it all feels like it's for other people. And I'll share a quick story with you too. Randy Abelman was an incredible diver and a a member of the 1980 Olympic team, which was boycotted. And I think that's, that's tough for a lot of people, right? Like to have made that team, to have done all that work, all these moments we just talked about to not have the opportunity to have those moments is, uh, it's pretty terrible. And so we're sitting there talking and I got to know Randy really well. And I love Randy. And uh, I was saying like, you know, Randy, you, you've had a lot of divers, at the Olympics as a coach, like, what, have you, have you been pretty close to a medal? He goes, Mike, this is it. This is my best shot. Might be the best shot I get. <laughs> oh, awesome. Love that. I love that. <laughs> and then a couple of days before the Olympics and, you know, Randy is like the ultimate psychology guy. And so I don't know if this was on purpose or not just to help me out, but he looks at me and he goes, Mike, I'm, I'm getting pretty nervous. And I think just because he knew the way I was, I just looked at him straight in the eyes and I said, Randy, I'll take care of us. I got it. You know, and I think I think he knew that for me to have to say that would make me more comfortable looking back on it. But that was just a really special moment for us. I had completely forgot about that until a couple of years later, he came up to me and told me that story. And it was I was like, Randy, we were we were doing that for you and everything you had been through in your Olympic journey too. that that was huge for us. Mm, I love Randy. Everybody loves Randy. How can you not yeah, love he's Randy? He's <laughs> great. Uh, well, so what kind of cool, because you had a lot of crazy experiences after that. I mean, you met your doppelganger, Zach Efron, at, at that Games, too. That was like the whole big buzz is we found your doppelganger. <laughs> and he happened to be in Rio, I think, to see Simone or something random. What were your post-Olympic, uh, like, did, what was your maybe craziest experience after the Olympics? Oh, that had to be it. You know, <laughs> I was, uh, the, the Olympic village can get pretty crazy, but I, I was pretty happy. I was you know, Kennedy and I, we were done on the same day. And so we were just kind of hanging out. You guys so, meddled on the same day too, didn't you? Which I think is Yeah, so we awesome. did. We did. 8-10. Um, you know, we, we don't really know our anniversary date of when we started dating. And so we just made that our anniversary date. So 8-10 <laughs> is when we, we celebrate our anniversary. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the Zach Efron thing was pretty funny. I, it was really, if you sort of know how I am, I'm, I'm not a social media guy. I'm not really into that kind of stuff. Like I'm, I'm very much about the sport and about the work. And so it was really funny for me where I just had, you know, the biggest moment of my athletic career happen and nobody cared about that. 
<laughs> Nobody cared about the diving. They all just thought this whole like Zac Efron thing was was funny or interesting. And so I was kind of like, yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, that, that was nuts. That was a lot of fun. So what, what was it like going? Because you went back to NCAA diving after the Olympics. I, I mean, were you like a celebrity? What was it? Was it hard to get motivated for NCAAs after winning an Olympic medal? Or was it kind of just back to business, back to the usual? Yeah, I mean... One of, one of maybe the biggest mistakes I ever made in my diving career, I was, I mean, after that Olympic Games, I was so fired up about where I was going to take my diving career. I got off the airplane from Rio and drove to the dryland room. <laughs> I was listening to pump up music on the flight back. I was just so excited for what was next. And I ended up really burning myself out that next year a little bit for that reason, not taking time to maybe allow that whole situation to sink in and, and give respect to what had happened. But yeah, I, I was so pumped up for that. And, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter to me if I'm diving at the Olympics or I'm diving at some Saturday dual meet in Bloomington. I want to win and I want to dive my best. And that was something that was always really important to me. And so in terms of having a letdown, that that certainly wasn't there. I was I was all in on collegiate diving. And one other thing that was important to me, too, was Indiana had given me so much giving me so much. And I was able to win two NCAA titles at Texas, but it wasn't until my senior year at Indiana that I won another NCAA title. And I remember going into that weekend and just feeling like I owe it to the school to win them an NCAA title. I really do. Like to not do that, given the fact that I think I'm more than capable of it and I've done it before, like I have to be able to do this. And so you take it for granted when you have that kind of success early in an NCAA career. And you realize with that, there's limited opportunities. And there's limited opportunities at the Olympics too. But, you know, you have, for me, eight chances to win an NCAA title. And all of a sudden, you're down to two in your last, your last event. And so, for me, that was, that was a really special moment to try to make that happen for Indiana. But again, and that goes back to that purpose-based performance, which I think is just, it just reeks throughout your, your story in such a cool way, you know. But I mean, let's fast forward a little bit. So you, you get the bookends, you know, freshman year, senior year, you win these NCAA titles for both your schools, which is awesome. But now, you know, 2020 is coming and you were training, you know, beyond college so you could solely focus on diving. Then the Olympics are postponed with COVID. And but you already had life plans. Like what happened in that that time? Yeah, me and everybody else, right? I mean, I don't think there's yeah, exactly. anybody that I've talked to whose life wasn't greatly impacted or their plans weren't greatly impacted, especially if you're at a pivotal turning point in your life, right? Like you were transitioning from one thing to another. And with Olympic athletes, that's always the case. It's not like a professional sport where every year there's, an, there's a, you know, an NBA championship or something, and you can decide year by year what you want to do. This is, we plan our life in quads. Exactly. And so everyone's either planning for how they're going to return from that quad and keep diving or how they're going to transition to the real world or anything like that. And so, yeah, I had everything lined up. I was, I was ready to go be just a student again and be in a full-time MBA program. And I also felt like I was diving really well and I was trending the right way. The last World Series, right before COVID, I was third individually on three meter. And I just felt like, you know, my my dream coming back was to win an individual medal. And so I really felt like I was treading in that direction. I thought I had a great shot. And so when, when I, well, funny enough, I, I got third. And one of the reasons I got third was that the two Chinese divers weren't there. And this was late February. And we thought, hmm, the Chinese divers can't make this meet. Maybe what's going on over there is kind of significant. Like maybe, <laughs> maybe this is a big deal. And so sure enough, everything shuts down. And, you know, once it did for us, it was like, what are we going to do? Is this even going to happen? I was, I was living with Kennedy and we had a roommate who was now an Olympic swimmer for Canada as well. Her name is Bailey Anderson. And she looked at me and, you know, right when everything shut down, she goes, Mike, what do you think? Like, 
is the Olympics going to happen? And I said, of course, the Olympics. Like, this is going to go on for three weeks, and no matter what, they'll make the Olympics happen. And so as things got more and more serious and we started to realize the ramifications of what was happening, it was like, wow, I don't know what's going to happen. And then even even the following year, too, when I was at Michigan and I was figuring everything out, it really, even in, in January, February, we still didn't know if this was going to happen. And so that level of, of uncertainty was something I had never dealt with before. It was always, and this is the great thing about being an athlete, I know exactly when I'm going to dive. You know, at four o'clock on July 23rd, I'm going to be diving sinker at the Olympics. Let me just prepare for that. <laughs> right. You know, now it's like, I might wake up tomorrow and I'm going to find out the same time as everybody else. I'm going to wake up tomorrow. And the Olympics is going to be canceled, you know, and all this work. What what was it for? You know, and so it was it was a really challenging time. Very sure. stressful. Yeah. Very yeah. stressful. But you you decided to go back and it will not go back, but to go to Michigan and get your MBA in this time, which uh, so <laughs> I mean, and you're training with a different coach. Like how how did that all play out? Yeah. I mean, a few different things on that. I think for me, a big point of this whole thing is it's something I like to talk to people a lot about is your transition out of diving, right? It's not a sport where you're going to make millions and millions of dollars and it's going to support you for the rest of your life. And so what is your plan for the next steps? And I thought I had a really good plan set up. And I basically said, you know, I'm, I'm 26 and I don't want to postpone the next steps in my life any longer. Like I'm really serious about my next steps. I'm really serious about a career in, in finance. And I, I got a job in investment banking eventually. Um, uh, and that's, that's something I really want to pursue to the fullest extent. And so the longer I wait, the harder it's going to be. And so I figured no matter what, I'm going to go do that. That was like step one. And then the other component of this was, look, I've, I love diving more than anything. I can't let this opportunity go. If there's an Olympic Games, I'm going to be at it. I'm going to make sure I'm going to be at it and I'm going to be ready. And it's going to get the very best effort that I have to go with. And so I, I found a way to do both. It was a little bit like being back in undergrad again, which is it's so weird, like, you know, all my roommates and stuff. I was like, Oh, I'm going to practice at five 30 or whatever. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what? We're not like, we're not 20 anymore. Like what's going on. But no, it, it was, it was challenging for sure, but really rewarding as well. And I don't know, it was, it was a bit nice at times too, especially because, because we were so uncertain about what was happening with the Olympics. It was really nice to know that, okay, even if this Olympics doesn't happen, like I'm doing something else that I'm excited about, you know, and I have next steps planned. And so it was pretty comforting in times when, when the uncertainty was high. That's cool. Well, the Olympics did go on. You qualified in synchro with Andrew Capabianco. Was it hard not to make it individually? Because I know that was one of your big goals going into that year. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, I mean, really, geez, talk about one of the lowest moments of my diving career. I think it had been seven years since I missed a team individually. And so I took a lot of pride in that, making teams every year and, and really feeling like that goal was there. And I feel like I was diving really well, too. And even, you know, I didn't have a very good prelim. I had a pretty solid semi. And even going to the finals, I just I knew I was going to make the team. I had that feeling. I just know I am. And I just didn't dive the way I needed to dive. And, you know, credit to Andrew, credit to Tyler. They, they, they were awesome. And I'm so happy to see that two of the young guys we have are just going to be absolute stars for the sport and carry USA diving on three meter for for a long time to come. And so that was exciting to see. But yeah, on a personal level, it was it was pretty devastating for sure. And I guess it, it was in some ways positive, though, because I got to turn it all back on to Synchro, you know, and, and to be honest, given going back to school and some of the sacrifices, I don't know that I was diving at the level I needed to, to try to win that individual medal, like I thought I was the year before. And so I don't know if that would have been the card. And so the idea that I just got to put everything into Synchro and, and go out on that note, that was that was pretty powerful to me. 
And obviously, you guys did really well. What was the difference? Because this time you're a veteran, but you have a new partner too, Andrew, who's younger, is his first Olympic Games. Were you kind of like helping him keep it together? Was he pretty solid? Like, what was, how was it different from Rio to Tokyo? I was joked that kid didn't need any help from me. He, uh, <laughs> he is just so confident in his abilities. And he was dealing with injuries the entire time, too. Like, he, he didn't train very much in between the Olympic trials and the Olympics. He was, his back was, really struggling. So we were doing whatever we could just to keep our timing. And I think he got off a couple. I don't even know if he got off his full list before we left for Tokyo. He definitely did while we were there, but he really just had very limited training. And so he, he was so ready though, mentally, he was ready to compete. And it was really just about, you know, us making sure that six dives were consistent and we put everything down. We know how good we can be. So let's just make sure we put it all together at one time. And it, it was great. You know, it was, it was strange diving in that quiet pool. <laughs> yeah. Was that like wildly different? I mean, cause it, there were no spectators allowed. It was just the other divers that were there watching. So did it, did it even feel like an Olympics to you having been to one that was a normal, more of a normal kind of Olympics? It, you know, strange in that way, like the energy, absolutely not. And this goes back to a bit of the pray for rain story, right? Where it's just like, we know it's going to be like that. Can we embrace that? Like when everybody else, you know, some of the studs, like the, the British team didn't have a great meet, but maybe some of that's that they weren't ready for that environment being so different. And I don't know, you know, it's the same thing with a lot of other teams, but we were just so ready for that. Like we knew what it was. We were going to embrace that. And we felt good about that whole situation. And so that, that was good. It, it was it was sort of like this contradictory thing where it didn't feel like an Olympics because the energy wasn't there in the pool, but it felt like Olympics because you knew what the stakes were. Like you still know you're diving for Olympic medals. Those Olympic medals mean as much as any other Olympic medals. And so the, the stakes were still there. The pressure was still there. And so I don't know. I, I it, was, it was interesting. Definitely very, very different. But it was uh, still a fun event to compete in for sure. That's awesome. Um, I mean, wow. And you, and you said you haven't decided yet whether you're going to hang up the suit or take the job or what's what's in store. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. I, uh, <laughs> I, I've sort of been taking some time, especially, you know, after that additional year to the quad, uh, just my body was pretty run down for sure. And, uh, between that and just taking care of my mind and making sure I get everything in, in line. Uh, yeah, I've been taking some time to figure it out. And so I think in August, I'll probably have a pretty good idea of whether I want to take those next two years and, and fully commit to diving or set off into the world of investment banking. Well, Mike, we wish you the absolute best of luck. We're going to pray for rain. <laughs> and uh, you have just been an absolute joy. Thank you for so many just truth bombs and epic advice and wisdom. Um, you share your story so well. We really appreciate you coming on today. Love it, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests, and it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.